some very uh, innovative individuals have learned to use dogs to sniff poop from whales. And animals are, are able to find animals in that are, are feeding a lot on salmon. The, the feces floats a lot because it has so much fat in it after they defecate. So the dogs are able to find that very actively. Not just killer whales, dolphins. Um, they really? That also. So, so they have dogs in a boat, like a pointer, and, and, and when they, if they get a hit, they'll, the dogs will point and they run the boat over there. So they, they, and then they go and they scoop up the, the feces. And when they get that feces, they're able to start doing a lot of things with it. One of the things they do is look at DNA and look at hormones, look at fat content. Hi, I'm Cindy Simmons, and this is See the World with Cindy Simmons. The entire goal of this podcast is to take you on an eye-opening journey and see the world through the lens of animal rescue, care and conservation, thrilling family adventures, and interesting people. SeaWorld has rescued and rehabilitated over 40,000 animals, but their conservation efforts don't stop there. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Todd Robeck, Vice President of Conservation Research and Animal Health at SeaWorld. We're going to learn all about some of the important research that has been done with animals in their care and how that ultimately benefits marine life in their natural habitats. So let's dive in and just be prepared for my puns. Sorry, bad dad jokes, I guess. So Dr. Robeck, that's a pretty fancy schmancy title, Vice President of Conservation Research and Animal Health at SeaWorld. But explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> what do you do? How did you get there? Give me all the scoop. I mean, it's a long, torturous journey, uh, right? So I guess we all have one. But essentially, I have a, a PhD in reproductive physiology. So I have a background in research. And that's the same time. Uh, and I've been doing research with, with SeaWorld in, in areas of reproduction and, uh, and, and medicine for or almost 30 years now. Wow. And at the same time, I have a, a degree in, in veterinary medicine. So I'm a doctor of veterinary medicine. And I've been a clinical veterinarian starting in uh, 1993 with SeaWorld. And currently now, the animal health part is I help oversee, guide, mentor um, veterinary staff in each of the different parks that we have across our system. So you know your animals. I, I know the animals at SeaWorld. Don't ask me about a, your, uh, your dog. I've, gotten, <laughs> I've forgotten about that. But uh, well, My dog has this thing on his hind leg. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. so, so Dr. Robeck, can you tell me a little bit more about SeaWorld's role in conservation through research? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we have a, an amazing, unique collection of animals that we have spent years and years working with and understanding. And these animals provide such an opportunity to learn about just even the basic biology of all these different species that you otherwise would be impossible for us to learn from wild animals. One of the reasons why I got into this area was I was so excited about the potential to be able to work with animals where you can actually ask them to give you samples and train them and teach them how to, to provide a, you know, a body part, their fluke, for instance, to get a blood sample or teach them how to pee on command or different ways to get biologic samples that allow you to learn about what's happening inside their body. And these, these opportunities are essentially impossible in wild species. Now, We've come a long way since I started, but when I started, there were there were no samples like these being collected or at least being analyzed. And I met a veterinarian, a mentor of mine, um, Dr. Jim McBain, in 1987, and he looked at me, and I was doing some work with monk seals, Hawaiian monk seals, who are very endangered. And they were at SeaWorld, and we were trying to learn why it is that or how to keep the males from 
hurting the females when they breed because they were the population had got so skewed in Hawaii that they had forgotten that they hadn't forgotten. They had gotten out of control and they had these very large breeding groups where there would be 10, 20, 30 males trying to breed with one female. And the females are getting damaged in this process, severely damaged and dying as a result. And so uh, working with people at the Navy in Hawaii and, and NOAA fisheries back in 1986 or 7, we're trying to figure out how we could get the males to, to be less aggressive and essentially uh, get them out of the breeding pool by giving them hormones. So I was at SeaWorld uh, trying to understand this process and work with the animals there. And I met Dr. McBain. And he looked at me and he said, and you got to remember, I'm, I don't know how old I was then, but it was a lot younger. And he, and I, but I was in reproductive physiology working on my PhD. And he said to me, you know, Todd, I have um, about two to 3,000 urine samples from killer whales. And I don't know what to do with them. I'm thinking about throwing them out. And it was just such a moment for me. I said, well, he goes, you know anybody that can work with them? And I, of course, raised my hand and you know, <laughs> shouted out loud, yes, 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 I can, I can. And it was really the start of, of my career with, with marine animals. And, and it's an example of, and you got to remember, nothing is known about the reproductive physiology of these animals. And one of the things I keep going back to is that it's very hard to breed and understand the reproduction or breeding of an endangered species if, if you can't breed them. If you don't know about the reproduction, how are you going to help them? Right. And that's very uh, apropos about today as we're looking at some of the endangered specifically the southern resident killer whale population. Uh, one of their biggest problems is reproduction. And the work and the foundations that we laid starting so many years ago ha ha has enabled researchers in the wild to start interpreting hormone levels they're now able to get from feces, fecal samples collected uh, from wild killer whales. So th this type of work, it overlaps continually all across all the different animal species. You can talk about dolphins, manatee, on and on and on from understanding uh, medicine, how to take care of them, how to treat injuries in the case of the manatee, we're talking about all the rescue work we're doing. Uh, none of that work would be possible if we didn't have veterinarians who are learning with animals on a daily basis and then are able to apply that knowledge to, to help these animals, whatever uh, capacity or need that they particularly have. So was this something that you were doing before there was an actual SeaWorld park? Yes, I was working... Uh, well, no, I'm not that old. <laughs> I, <laughs> Did you just snore? <laughs> it, yeah. You are my kindred spirit. Your, yeah, yeah. What's wrong with your camera? Or did I not put makeup on today? Look, I mean, SeaWorld, <laughs> SeaWorld started in it with Hubs Research Center in the 60s. Carl That's Hubs what I and, meant. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they started doing research early, early on in the early 60s. And they, they started this facility, which is still uh, operating today, and, and to look at and understand the biology, the marine biology of, you know, of San Diego area and, and the world in general. And just if you could get a time capsule and go back into the 60s, we, we didn't know anything. I mean, it was just, you know, the, the marine biology was just a fantasy. Scuba diving had only been invented for, you know, since in the 40s. So really, it was not mainstream. Snorkeling was happening, and there were you know, very niche people that were out there. Fishermen, of course, knew the ocean the best because they're the ones who were, uh, you know, interacting with it to survive and to live. But as a science, it was a very young, young area. So they, they started uh, Hub's uh, SeaWorld Research Institute in the 60s. Right. And, and as they were building it, they realized how exciting these animals were. 
I mean, people didn't have any comprehension about how intelligent cetaceans and marine animals are. They, sea lions to killer whales, dolphins, all, all in, belugas, all in between. They equate them with fish, and that's one of the biggest sort of dichotomies people have today. Is you, you know, you see a dolphin that you're able to treat similarly to you, with your family dog to to, to ask to to learn behaviors and interact with you and, and mm-hmm. develop relationships with you. And people look at that and their first reaction is you know, from the ocean. How is this possible? They're so intelligent. Well, because next to a tuna, yeah, they are very intelligent. So you just, you don't comprehend that. Yeah. They're mammals, just like right. your horse, your cow, but they just happen to live in the water. So that huge gap between, I think the, what people were used to in terms of uh, using the ocean as a resource for essentially for food, um, <clears throat> to these animals that you, you really want to think twice about how you're handling and taking care of them because they are so intelligent, inquisitive, and interested in, in the world around them. But mm-hmm. hubs started, because of that interest, they got into showing and letting people see them up close, right? That's how right. SeaWorld started. Um, how do you go see a dolphin? Most people, if you didn't, weren't on a boat, you're never going to see a dolphin. So you go to a place like Hub SeaWorld, uh, Marine Land of the Pacific, and, and then you'll be able to get close and interact with these animals in a way that had never been possible before. And that that really took off uh, as an industry and a business, and it really affected people's attitudes about marine animals in general. And people really want to not only get close to them, but to learn about them, and also, more importantly, to try and protect them in their natural habitat. Well, that's what I think is pretty neat, because so the animals that are in the care of SeaWorld, they're studied by third-party scientists, obviously, as well as our own. How then is what you all are learning helping the wild populations? Everything that we've learned about these animals is almost direct, directly, you know, we can directly apply it to understanding the health and well-being of animals in the wild. That, that goes from just simply, if an animal is stranded on, stranded on the beach, how do we take care of it? What, what do we do to be, enable the animal either to return back to its natural habitat or in some cases uh, bring it back into facility because he can't survive on his own or if the animal or we are able to evaluate him almost, well, immediately is a relative term, right? But very quickly, if that animal has a chance to even survive and should we humanely euthanize that animal exactly where we found him to, to put him out of his, his pain and, and suffering. Yeah. So all that is from medicine and all that's done directly from veterinarians who work with marine animals in zoos and aquariums. There's no other way to get that information. You can't train yourself on how to take care of these animals um, if you've never put your hands on them or touched them or learned about the behavior or looked at a blood sample that you collected from their flukes. So all this information that we've learned from being able to care, just the same as your family dog. And and how is that applied to taking care of your, your, your animals? Would you lo- want your veterinarian to come take care of your, your dog if he's never seen a dog before? Probably not. So it's a very similar type of situation. And then if you look at, at research Everything we know about them has been learned through um, the research and activity that we've done. It's certainly in the last in the last ten years, things have changed. But all the procedures, applications we've learned from working with um, animals in, in zoos and aquariums. Uh, for even recently, for instance, we're doing some work with um, looking at feces. Now, the, now in the last twenty years. Um, some very uh, innovative individuals have learned to use dogs to sniff poop from wild, from whales. And so the dogs really? will go out on boats and, and they've trained the dog, just like training a dog to find a person. And this actually started in the, you know, in the woods looking at bear scat. And they thought, well, why not 
try it with cetaceans. So they did, and and animals are, are able to find uh, some some particular species, or or say in like killer whale's case, um, animals in that are, are feeding a lot on salmon. The, the feces floats a lot because it has so much fat in it after they defecate. So the dogs are able to find that very accurately. Not just killer whales, dolphins. Um, they're really? able to do that also. So. So they have dogs in a boat, like a pointer, and 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 when they if they get a hit, they'll the dogs will point and they run the boat over there. And usually they're following whales already, so it's a little bit easier. So they the dog will point them out. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, by the way. I, I couldn't find it using my nose, but but uh, <laughs> at least they're in the the proximity, right, of where right. the animal should be pooping, right? So they, they and then they go and they scoop up the the feces, and when they get that feces they're able to start doing a lot of things with it. One of the things they do is look at DNA and look at hormones, look at fat content. So um, the hormones, for example, well, we've published information on feces and killer whales in terms of what hormones in the feces mean um, in relationship to, well, in, in serum and, and not, not in the urine and serum, not, not in feces, but what those hormones change, how they change during pregnancy and those changes then, very important changes to identifying not only um, if they're pregnant, but also potentially what stage of pregnancy. So then they can, tr- they've used that information then to try and interpret accurately the information they're getting. I never thought I would talk so much about poop in one of our podcast episodes, but I am totally here for it because I am learning so much from you. So thank you. Um, I do want to ask you about the SeaWorld Conservation Fund. I've heard of it before, but can you talk through a little bit about what it is and where the money comes from? Yeah, the Conservation Fund is is funds generated from primarily two two sources, well, at least historically, Guests in our parks can donate to the funds. And then also in the past, we, we matched and donated funds as a company yourself. Um, to the tune of about $19 million we've supported uh, and, you know, over the last 15, 20 years that since the con- – not, not quite 20 years since the Conservation Fund was, was founded. And uh, there's been over 540 different types of uh, projects and ecosystems that we've been involved with, a hundred different species. So it's not just marine animals; it's a lot of animals, uh, land animals also that are endangered and threatened. And and one of the things about the grant is we have researchers all over the world, literally from the Amazon rainforest to the Philippines, uh, to uh, all parts of Africa, who are applying for grants that really have been responsible for, in a lot of cases, helping these scientists get started with their projects and continually funding them for years and years and years. So it's, so it's not just it's here. Quite a, no, no, we take, uh, we take uh, applications for grants from anyone in the world that wants to apply. So no, that's absolutely, it's, it's been quite a, quite a successful program. Wow. Well, how do you determine then which research projects are executed? Well, it's like any grant or funding organization. You have to apply for the grant and it, part of it is, uh, so there's not, uh, and once you apply, then there's a review, there's, a, there's a, a conservation fund board that reviews the applicants and then decides what uh, projects are, they feel like are worth funding and also are, are aligned with maybe the priorities we put out that year for just different types of uh, projects we want to focus our funding on. And then some, some uh, projects that have been very successful and they're looking for money to help continue those projects. They of course will get a, a high priority, especially if they've used the money wisely and they've 
created a, an ongoing uh, program that they were able to develop, then we also would like to continue funding them. Uh, they, they would get a little bit of a priority, I would guess. But ultimately, it's a board uh, reviewers who review the projects and, and take all these things into consideration and make a decision. Nice. I know we were talking earlier, you mentioned about some of the studies that have been published and you gave a staggering stat. Would you mind sharing that stat again about how many studies have been published? Yeah, we've there's over 400 scientific publications that, that SeaWorld has, has pre- and these are SeaWorld authors, uh, scientists that have worked directly with SeaWorld to produce publications. There are countless other uh, projects where we provided, say, samples or access to animals where we weren't included on as an author, just as an acknowledgement. So we've had a really tremendous um, effect on the scientific sort of base and understanding of marine species. And of course, SeaWorld has a very large uh, zoo, bush gardens, uh, and there are lots of animals in there, rhinos, elephants that are endangered, threatened, uh, tigers, uh, where research has been conducted within the confines of uh, that zoologic institution and in cooperation with with other zoos and aquariums around the country and, and the world. So there's been a lot of interesting stuff. Recently, we've we've done some genetic work where we've worked with a researcher in UCLA. He's now at a uh, at another a private lab, but he still has an affiliation with UCLA and, and um, Dr. Steve Horvath, and he's uh, developing the ability to take, well, initially blood and, and skin, but really any tissue from any different organs looking at, and tell the age of that animal. And so oh, we, wow. I met him a few years ago, I think it was 2017, and we talked about his goal was to create what was called an aging clock. So you're able to take DNA from, he believes that the aging process has, uh, is very, conserved, or another way to say it is, is very similar across all, all mammal mammalian species, and that there are certain um, CPGs or sites is a way to put it on the DNA that, that get changed by aging process, or they get changed exposure to environmental conditions. Say if you smoke, damages certain sites, um, are just the normal uh, uh, metabolic process that 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 occurs in your body, all the different factors that go into creating the aging phenomenon. He's into studying aging, so his first goal was to be able to prove or show that by looking at a vast number of these sites, you could identify ones that are common throughout diff- all different mammalian species. So he wanted to do a mammalian clock, so you could get a blood sample from any mammal and tell what age it is, and and so that was his huh. goal. So we, we, of course, said, yeah, we'd love to play. We have lots of different species that we regularly get samples, blood, and, and we can get skin samples routinely with, you know, in our case, certainly with uh, the marine mammals, a, a lot of them, most of them uh, will voluntarily provide a fluke or just like you go to the doctor, can you give me your arm? They'll give you your fluke and they'll lay there by, you know, while you get a blood sample and then you say, thank you, good job. You give them a little uh, sticker of Batman or something <laughs> like that or, you know, like your kid. Right. And off they go. So um, it's very easy for us to participate in these types of studies. And we get regular blood samples uh, all, all the time anyways, because we're um, um, just for health exams, right? We check them right. regularly uh, at health assessments, uh, physical exams, like you would go to your doctor theoretically once a year. Our animals get 
physical exams at least four times a year and sometimes more depending on the species. So anyway, this type of a project is very easy for us to be involved with. And um, so we signed on and they, since that point we've published, I, it's been six or seven different publications now on different species about developing clocks. And one of them that, that I'm particularly proud of is we developed a, a odontic clock whereby we can tell the age of uh, any cetacean or odontic tooth whale or dolphin uh, by a blood sample or a skin sample. So it's, really? it's quite amazing work that now you can go to wild population and get, and they often collect skin biopsies with, from wild animals, wild dolphins and whales, because that's one of the things they can get uh, relatively easily. And so they'll collect a skin sample and then they can submit that and we can tell them what the age of that animal is. It's, um, and historically within a few years, right? Within right. Uh, two to three years, uh, either way. Right. But it's it's quite significant because typically the only way to tell, besides asking them, and they often wouldn't respond, right, um, um, <laughs> it, is you have to wait until they die and, and get a tooth, or you have to, in some health assessments, they would actually pull a tooth, and then you section that tooth and look at growth rings like a tree, and, and with, with that technique, you're able to tell the oh. age uh, up to a certain age. When they get older, the teeth wear down, and you start having problems. But the the epigenetic clock that we built uh, is good throughout their lifespan. So it's it's a very interesting study. We've also done work right now. We're working with um, a lot of scientists in the Pacific Northwest. We're collecting um, fecal samples to look at. It, it, well, actually, what, what's really, really nice now is we can collect urine, feces, blood, and blow, ex respiratory exhalate samples, all at the, on the same day. So there are scientists who are trying to understand because they're now able to collect blow from from whales. We put a drone or hold a stick or as this animals swim, they put a, a cup and they can collect blow samples. Uh -huh. And so they're trying to understand what, what it is this actually means. And because they, they need to ground truth it or compare it to what's happening in, in, in the physiology of an animal instead of assuming that they're getting results that are, are significant. But by using our animals, we can get all those samples and now we can tell them we can use blood as a gold standard, but then we can look at feces, urine, and um, blow all at the same time. So we can tell not only what they can detect, but it, it, what kind of expectations they should have in terms of the concentrations and the levels that they were, are going to be, that they may be able to see in the wild species. So we're working quite a bit with a number of researchers up there trying to help them validate the tests that they want to use in the wild animals to better understand their health, their well-being, right. also their diet and things that are challenging them, challenging the wild populations. How do you get the animals to participate in these studies? Well, we, we have we, the wild or, or the ones that see? Both, both. I'm fascinated by both, yeah, actually. Yeah. Well, the ones at SeaWorld, uh, they're trained. They're, they're all, they're taught to do behaviors, uh, Another study, for an example, we have uh, looking with a hearing study where we have some researchers coming in and they're evaluating how well they can hear the range of uh, sound that the animals are able to detect. So in this case, this happens to be with our killer whales and they're taught to push a paddle when they hear the sound. What? So they lay down there and then you provide a tone and then they, they push a paddle in response to indicate they heard, it, heard the tone. So then it's like a hearing test at a doctor where they say, hi, low, can you hear, can you hear? Do the same thing with the killer whales. And then they're able to learn their ability to discriminate tone levels. And that's very, very important because 
a lot of the animals are facing problems with uh, boat traffic and just noise in general. Uh, and so how does that affect their hearing and their echolocation, their ability? Since they live in a, an aquatic world, they really don't rely on their vision until something would be in close proximity. They rely so much on sound and they can communicate miles and miles apart from each other using sound, especially some of the great whales who can communicate, they believe, across the ocean with some of the low frequency sounds they emit. Um, so how is the noise that humans make ever increasing, right, affecting their ability to not only communicate with each other, but also to find and locate their prey items? And so we just, these types of studies that we're able to do with our animals is critical for, for scientists to understand how the frequency of noise is affecting their ability to, to use their hearing. And it also then directly relates back to regulations and management of uh, rules that are applied to, to, to help protect some of these species that are, are critically endangered. So another great example of, of how we're able to, to help directly with wild populations. I could talk about this forever, this and feces. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. um, so thinking about some of the, you know, things, the outcomes um, when you've done the research, what are some of the most important outcomes that have come from some research that SeaWorld has participated in that you're like, yes, oh my goodness, this came from this? Well, you know, if, it, it's so, it, it, everything is sort of time-based, right? If you go back to when I first started, nobody knew how long, what is the gestation length of a, of a cetacean? No idea. So when we first started being so successful at raising animals in, in aquariums, in our zoos, in our parks, that was the first time it had ever happened. And so we're, we learned so much about just basic biology of these animals that, that no one had ever learned about. So that, that was a wow moment, right? Now you go, that's very passe and everybody knows that, but nobody knew, is you know, 30 years ago, these answers to these questions. So every time we learn something in the context of the time we learn it, it's cutting edge. And this yeah. has been going on repeatedly year after year after year after year. We're on the cutting edge of science. The science evolves and we evolve with it. So recently, as I said, the ability to to tell the age of a odonacy to tooth whale with a, a blood a skin sample is is potentially revolutionary. The ability to to help understand how much right now we're doing a study the ability to determine what food they ate, not just what uh, what how much food, but what fish they ate. Right, huh. it, based on able to look at the feces and determine the content of the feces. So there's a lot of really amazing studies. The drone work. Uh, we did right now they're relying heavily in uh, in the Pacific Northwest because reproduction is such a uh, in dire straits in this population and they're trying to understand why this is occurring are we losing calves but we had it when we were breeding our killer whales this is so important to breed our animals because we learned about the content of the milk and how much toxins are being they're they're removed because toxins typically bind to fat so when the this is called offloading transferring the toxins in the milk from the mom to the calf. And so we study this vertical transmission uh, of these toxins into calves and found out what kind of level these animals are, are receiving. And then potentially this could be one of the causes of uh, calf deaths that we're seeing in the wild population. So that's an, that's an amazing thing. We're able to collect milk samples voluntarily from, from a killer whale and from dolphins. Can you roll over and let us you know, collect milk from your, your, your uh, mammary gland, you know? Oh, okay, that's fine with me. 
So the, the research that we do goes on and on and on. The, this, the, the, one of the things they're relying heavily now on is drone ma- measurements of wild killer whales to look and see if they can detect health assessments and or, or not if they're pregnant. Well, how did they first start learning that? They came to San Diego and looked, flew drones over our pregnant killer whales and other whales to see what body changes they made during different stages of gestation. And then they were able to say, okay, this is what this looks like. Now we can take this and go back into wild populations and follow these animals, try and detect when these changes are occurring. Where's the best part of their body to detect it from overhead? When can you first expect to see it? And then they follow those animals that particularly to see if a calf is with that mom the next year or not. And then by doing this over and over again, they're able to determine, well, this animal was pregnant. We have a very good confidence she's pregnant, but now she doesn't have a calf and she should have delivered. So this animal lost her calf. Uh. Why did this happen? So that this, you know, we, we're involved in a lot of these studies that are, are, are groundbreaking. And as I said, we're on the cutting edge of technology. And as, as science evolves, we evolve with it and we find new and, and better ways to try and learn about our animals and, and the animals that they represent from wild populations and help, help on their protection. So it's really critical that we continue to maintain these animals in the future so that we have this this group of animals that not only voluntarily they enjoy the participation, but they they provide a message of support and interest for for individuals to come to our parks. And it's just a critical, critical uh, base that we want to continue on into the future. Is there anything else you want to share, want people to know about research operations? Yeah, I think it's critical that people understand that without these animals, so many questions could not be answered. And not only are they there for uh, people to learn and observe and be next to and be close to and interact with, ways that they can appreciate them uh, and, and, and then learn from that point to try and help protect them and support research. But the money that they spend in our parks goes directly back to supporting so much work that we're doing. And these animals that are in our parks, these ambassadors for wild animals, are so critical for us to continue to to work with and to learn about how we can protect animals in the wild. So the research is is ongoing, and it's in such a way as uh, the animals participate of their own volition, and mm-hmm. uh, it's very critical for the survival of many species in the wild. And the world is not getting any smaller. The animals are being uh, threatened and pushed out of their habitats uh, more and more frequently. Humans are competing for the same food, food sources that these cetaceans and other uh, mm. marine mammals are eating. So who, who's going to win that battle? It's yeah. critical that we spend time trying to protect these animals both in the wild and to work with uh, places like SeaWorld where we can help study the different aspects of their biology to help us understand and protect the animals in the wild. So Dr. Todd Robeck, Vice President of Conservation Research and Animal Health at SeaWorld. Um, Before we let you go, there is one question that we always end our See the World podcast with, and that is, what is the best thing you have seen in the world? Uh, For me personally, the best thing I've seen in the world. Yep. Um, Well, I got to tell you, the first killer whale that was born uh, at SeaWorld was an amazing thing that astonished me and motivated me and got me excited. Uh, when I was still in school, when that happened in 1985. And just the ability to work with these animals and have them participate in their health and their care and and the research that we're doing every day is an amazing thing for me and something that I really, and I continue to enjoy to this day. 
Makes me happy. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I, I hope that people can walk away from this discussion a little more excited about what we do and, and ask more questions because that's that's what we're here for is to to ask questions, right? That's that's one of the things we need to do is uh, as a species is to learn about the animals around us and how we can take care of them. Well, I feel like I've learned something today and I feel like I say this every episode, <laughs> but man, I could talk to you for five hours straight because I learned so much and then I really didn't have any idea how important this research is for the survival of wild populations. So it's just incredible to see how the animals in SeaWorld's care are actually helping us learn more about how to protect and conserve the species. So thank you again. I'm Cindy Simmons and join us on the next See the World. As always, be sure to check out SeaWorld.com and select your favorite park to stay in the loop on all of the great things happening at SeaWorld. And lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you subscribed, left a little review and shared this podcast with all of your wonderful friends. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time.